You know, we're sitting here, you and I like a couple of regular fellas. You do what you do, I do what I gotta do. And now that we've been face to face, if I'm there and I gotta put you away, I won't like it. But I'll tell you, if it's between you and some poor bastard whose wife you're gonna turn into a widow, brother, you are going down. There's a flip side to that coin. What if you do got me boxed in and I gotta put you down? Because no matter what, you will not get my way. We've been face to face, yeah. But I will not hesitate, not for a second. Maybe that's the way it'll be. Or who knows? Well, maybe we'll never see each other again. All right, Jason, before we get started, so I just got an email blast from the Hollywood Reporter. You know, they send out emails like every 10 minutes. Quentin Tarantino just announced his next and last film that is going to start shooting this fall. And I realize this is a Michael Mann podcast tonight. We're not talking about QT, but we're going to do it for a second. He's doing a movie called The Movie Critic, apparently. Nobody knows what the storyline is, but it involves a movie critic. There's speculation that it's based on the famous New York Times, actually New Yorker, I should say, uh, film critic Pauline Kael, uh, who he's a, he's a big fan of. But uh, So I'm going to leave that there with you. What do you think about that? Tarantino's next and last. You were saving this. You knew this. You were trying to <laughs> – I feel ambushed. I feel ambushed right now, and I actually couldn't be happier about being ambushed. Okay, First of all, a Quentin Tarantino film is an event. Sure. I know where I'm going to be. When the release date for the film critic is released, that covers my plans for that day. I know exactly where I'm going to be. Yep. Like, uh, like my father used to say, an Ali fight, everybody on the block knew where they were going to be when Ali was fighting. So QT premiere, okay, that covers that. And I'll probably buy a ticket for the next day as well because it's Tarantino and I'm going to want to see it twice. And then I'll probably buy it and just watch it again and again and again. Um, okay, Pauline Kale, wow. That's that's deep in the archives. That's not confirmed, but that's like the speculation because he's a big fan of her. Yes, he is. I'm reading that Tarantino book that came out at the end of last year. It's called Cinema Speculation. And I think I've actually texted you about it. I bought it because you recommended it, and I tore through it. It's fascinating. So it's, it's, it's always – I tore through it too. So everybody's always asking me, how come I'm not current on The Last of Us or how come I'm not watching this show or that show? And the reason is, honestly, and I do watch TV, but the reason is, is I read at night. I read a lot. So like since the new year, I've already, I already read Heat 2 because I wanted to talk about that for this podcast, which I will save till later. I just finished uh, Cinema Speculation, and in that book – QT, he talks a lot about film critics. He did a whole chapter about this one film critic named Kevin Thomas from the LA Times, who was like the, the, the number two critic behind, uh, um, I think, uh, Kenny Turin. But um, he does reference Pauline Kael several times in the book. So now I'm beginning to think that this movie might be based on her. Whatever Tarantino does, I'm interested. I mean, what do, at this juncture, 
He's never made one that completely missed for me. Yep. He's made some that I prefer more than others. I'm, I'm in. It's Tarantino. I'm in. It's going to be incredible. Um, what Do you put any faith or any stock in the idea that this is going to be his last film? That's so great that you asked that. So when I saw the article, I flipped it over to our buddy Lance Newhouser, who I think you know. And, yes, um, I know he, Lance. Sure. He was on the show last year. We talked about Reservoir Dogs. So I, I sent it to Lance. He's a big QT guy. And he's like, that's exactly what he responded. He's like, you really think this is his last? And I said, yes, I do think it'll be his last because he seems like a very principled guy. If he says something, I think that's what Tarantino's going to do. But I don't think that that stops Tarantino from, you know, pivoting into scripted TV series and doing long form, you know, doing a show like Bounty Law on Apple TV Plus, right? Which I hope he does, which would be incredible. So I think he'll do something like that, but I don't think that counts as a feature film. You're right. It does not. It absolutely does not. He could. It wouldn't surprise me either if he got out from behind the, the, the camera and just started writing books. I mean, though he released Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as a full-fledged novel with details and information that was not in the film. You can see that his gears process first and foremost from a writing capacity. Yep. And that's the impetus for everything. He starts there, it evolves, he changes, he rewrites, it evolves, and then he's simultaneously thinking about how he's going to shoot this, what music is going to be behind it, how it's all going to work in concert for this big package deal. And he does, perhaps more than almost anybody, love cinema. And so I don't think he's ever going to walk away from motion pictures. He'll probably maybe produce a few, I'm sure. Um, He's got a lot of buddies in Hollywood, a lot of guys that are aching to work with him. And if he decides, I'm going to produce some things, there are actors who are still itching to get their paws there. They want to participate in something with Tarantino's name on it. And if you have a chance to be one of the leads or supporting actors, odds are pretty good you're going to get a nomination. The best thing I could say about that book, Cinema Speculation, and if you are into film, anybody listening, you really need to to get this book. I mean, it's it's exactly what Tarantino um, is about how he discovered film when he was young, how many movies he saw in the theater. He always tells you what theater he saw it at. But I've never, I can't recall another book where when I'm reading it, I will quickly grab my phone to write a note down or I go onto IMDb and I check something because he references this one film or this one filmmaker and I want to go look up that filmmaker. And all of a sudden I'm going down the rabbit hole on some you know, random director from the 60s, like Don Siegel, who isn't random, but uh, incredible read. But let's get back on, on topic. So what a way to start. What a way to start. You pulled the lid off of that and just said, surprise, motherfucker. Oh, man. No, you handled it like a pro. Thank you. Thank you, man. So I had you last October. We had you on to talk about First Blood, one of my favorite movies. Um, listen, here's what I'll say about that episode. I Every episode that I do is special to me. They're all babies. They're all children. And I love them all. However, if you had to ask me my favorite episode of 2022, it's without a doubt the Jason Thompson First Blood episode. It sort of checked every box that I have in my head about why I did this show and what, what I try to accomplish with this show. I remember at the end of that episode, you asked me like, what are we going to do next? And I think I asked you, what are we going to do next? And you said without, without a, like a hesitation, you're like heat. So here we are. Yes. Here it is. Yes. That was, that was truly a great episode. I had a, a blast doing it. And then 
you know, my one of my best friends listened to it and he loved it. And then my dad listened to it, my uncles, and they were like, man, this that, that was great. And so you've probably got some new subscribers out of it. And if I know my uncles, they're definitely going to recommend it to all their homies. So I hope you get some good listeners, man. And I appreciate it. I appreciated your time. And it's sad that this is my first one of the year, uh, but I couldn't think of anybody better to do the first one of the year than you. So thanks for joining us. Um, it's my pleasure, man. Let's go. Let's do it. Heat, 1995. Ooh. I think the movie Heat and the other Michael Mann film, Collateral, I think they bookend one another. And I have never read this before, but this is something I noticed. So I'm going to geek out for a second. The opening shot of Heat is you see the subway train, right? It's LA, it's nighttime. You see the subway train coming in. It's coming into focus, right? Come Off the train comes Neil McCauley, Robert De Niro. He comes off and he's about to start doing some, some recon work that he's doing for an upcoming score, right? You kind of follow him through and you sort of sense what this guy's all about. Very detailed, very meticulous. The last shot of Collateral is a subway train, the LA subway train going off into the distance inside that train is the dead body of Tom Cruise's um, contract killer, Vincent. And both films are LA crime stories, right? One is obviously heat is very much a saga, very sprawling in nature, three hours long. I don't, I wouldn't put collateral on that same plane, but it is, it, it does take place over an evening and a lot of things happen in an evening. So it's sort of a sprawling event in and of itself in in a moment in time in Los Angeles. But I find it really interesting that he opened one film with the subway coming in, closes out the other one on the subway going out. And I guess if I ever ran into Michael Mann today at a bar or something, that would be the very first thing I would ask him about. Was that intentional? I have to think that it was. Okay. Not a scorching take. And uh, it's actually been confirmed by Michael Mann. Has it? It has. Um, How do I not know this? I will have to find the interview for you. I cannot remember if it's uh, a video interview, a television interview, or if it was on like a DVD commentary. I'll have to remember where I, I heard him say this specifically. There's that blue line that crosses over from heat into collateral and back. Um, Michael Mann doesn't do anything by accident. <laughs> I mean, let's call it what it is. He doesn't do anything. Him, David Fincher, these guys don't do things by accident. If it's in the frame, it's there for a reason. Respect the craft. And he has confirmed your theory. The two films aren't necessarily connected structurally, but thematically and with the, the idea of that train starting the film Heat and then ending the film Collateral, it's, it is very connected in that sense because it is an L.A. crime story. L.A. is a massive city. It's enormous. And you know that there's nefarious things going down in every corner. Um, obviously, we're talking about cinema, not necessarily real life. Even though the events in Heat were taken from real life situations. And then you had copycats later on down the road from Heat. Which I thought is, we'll talk about that I'm sure. sure. But Michael Manners confirmed that. They are connected. They are the same tissue. Isn't that like reason number 28, why we love Michael Mann? <laughs> it's probably like reason number 77 that I love this movie. I mean, actually, no, it's even further down the list. There's, there's so many more MVP moments. There are so many interesting moments and dynamic elements to heat. And that's one of the things that I just love about it. Every time I watch it, I can see something that I had not seen before. I see something new every time. I hear something new every time. And that's why it's one of the most rewatchable films in my mind. 
Only the great filmmakers um, can give you that, where you can actually pick up something new every single time you see it. So take me back. You just mentioned 1995. That was when Heat came out. It came out at the end of the year. It came out in December of 95. Tell me where you were, what you were doing, um, where you saw it, if you remember, and what your immediate reaction was when you did see it. So I got turned on to Michael Mann films by my father. Uh, Dad was a big thief fan, loved Manhunter. Um, Last of the Mohicans came out in... 92. 92, right. And so we went to go see that in the theater together. 95, December of 95, I was... Well, I'm certain I was rooting along the Detroit Red Wings because they were cruising to one of the best records in National League, National Hockey League history. We won 62 games that year. Um, but also, throughout the course of that year, we had Toy Story had come out. Yep. Seven. Mm-hmm. Little Scorsese film called Casino. Right. Uh, yeah. De Niro and De Niro had Heat and Casino out in the theater at the same the theater time. Theater in the same, literally the same time. They were released five weeks apart. They were in the theater at the same time. And honestly, I had gotten on the uh, the Kevin Smith bandwagon. So Mallrats was out. So Mallrats was on. You know, everyone's vernacular. Um, so my brother Matt and I, we go see this at the Dollar Theater um, where we were living, and it was great because the Dollar Theater it was just that. They did the last week of a movie's run in the theaters, but it was typically the art house stuff. And Michael Mann's got some crossover appeal. He appeals to both the art house crowd and he also appeals to the blockbuster cinema crowd. Mm-hmm. So we paid our bucks each and walked in and the theater was managed by a friend of ours who basically let us get away with whatever we wanted. Um, so <laughs> we walked in with a full pizza and like a dime bag of reefer and <laughs> Um, we were the only two guys in the theater and the next night, cause that was a Monday night. I saw it on a Monday night, Tuesday night was 50 cent Tuesdays at the dollar theater. So we went back the next night and we watched it again. Um, and I didn't have a film vocabulary at the time. I just knew that this was different. I yep. knew that there was something about this thing. Yes, it's long. And in the wrong context, it can be a bit of a marathon. And when you're younger and more impulsive and you don't have the patience, you wish the film would be tighter, more streamlined. But then as you get older, you realize every scene in this film matters. I don't really know if you can leave much on the cutting floor from the final director's cut. Like, it's everything is there. Um, I was still enthralled with Seven. Um, Seven went absolutely bonkers in my mind because I've, I've always loved gritty crime stories. And I, with that phrase gets overused, gritty. It does. Um, I agree. In Seven, you could smell the acidity and the rain coming down, right? I don't think Morgan Freeman's ever been better, to be completely honest with you. Um, and Brad Pitt then makes the leap into intergalactic you know, film star. Um, Kevin Spacey's performance is obviously spectacular. That that was still definitely fresh on my mind, but there was like this subtle majesty and magic, like a dark magic to heat that required another viewing. And we had to get over the idea, you know, when you're when you're that age, when you're still a teenager in high school, you're thinking Pacino, De Niro, oh my god. Um, we weren't getting Godfather Part Two. That was not the plan. We weren't getting De Niro in. Raging Bull versus Serpico Pacino. This was a whole different thing. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and then upon rewatch, you realize that this cast of characters that he has created and he'd, he'd been obsessed with since the late 70s. I want to pull on something you just said, which I think is really interesting and I never thought about it this way. You talked about the length, right? The length of heat that's just under three hours long. And I saw it. I'm a little bit older than you. So I saw it in, in 95 as well. And um, I think I saw it for free because back then I was working kind of in the business and I saw everything for free. I had free access <laughs> to theaters. And um, so I went to go see it. And I, I obviously had high expectations. But I remember, and I can't believe I'm about to admit this on a podcast, but like I didn't love it when I first saw it. And I think it's because of the length. Like I think I, and I had nothing, I had nowhere to be, you know, I'm 24 years old. What the hell am I doing? Right. I'm just watching heat on a Tuesday night, whatever it was. And I just remember, like, I remember it being like, this movie's really well done. Like I didn't have any issues with it from a cinematic perspective. I knew that I had just seen something pretty accomplished, but I, I kind of walked out feeling a little bit like underwhelmed. And what I love most about that film, you know, 25 plus years later is exactly about the, the length, like the patient storytelling, which we'll certainly get into the the depth of characters. Um, the movie is elegant. In my opinion, it is, it is a violent crime thrill, but it's, it's done. It's beautifully photographed. It's like, there are, there are, there are sequences in this movie when you watch it. Like, I, I can't believe this is in a film like this, that this is in a genre film like this. So I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't really love it when I first saw it. And I think it was mainly because I was impatient with the, with the running time, but it only took me like a year or two later. I think it came out on VHS and then it obviously came out on DVD after that. I know it was a very popular DVD and I watched it on VHS. I watched it again on, on DVD and I quickly realized that I was just a freaking asshole. <laughs> I had no idea what I was thinking that this, this movie top 10 all timer for me, the movie is a masterpiece. Yes. You said it was photographed brilliantly, and it was Dante Spinotti. Yep. Man's worked with him before, Last of the Mohicans and The Insider. Yes. Um, but just two years after he, Dante Spinotti was also the director of photography and cinematographer for one of my favorite films of all time, another one of my favorite films of all time, a little masterpiece called L.A. Confidential. Phenomenal film. Curtis Hansen. A hundred percent. Later did Eight Mile with Eminem and... He actually got an amazing acting performance out of Eminem, which, okay. To begin, I worship at the altar of James Elroy. Um, I was at a Barnes & Noble many, many years ago, and Barnes & Noble used to publish their own magazine. It was called, appropriately, Book Magazine. And Elroy was on the cover. He was got that small face with the round glasses, and he just looks like, a, like an English professor. And the headline was, the title on the magazine was, the demon dog of American literature. And I said, I need to know more. And I just fell headlong into the world that James Elroy occupies. And it's disturbing. Um, oof. Um, Dante Spinotti, he was the director of, of photography on that. And um, Last of the Mohicans and The Insider. Come on, man. The Insider's gorgeous to look at. And The Last of the Mohicans is like autumn in... At the Appalachians, it's just every scene is shot and composed so beautifully, and you're just stopping to look at this. You're admiring the middle of this French and Indian War, and you're just looking at this going, oh, wow. Amongst all the carnage, you're like, well, that's a really beautiful bridge across that river there. And you're just awestruck for a second. That's that's the work that Dante can do. It's exceptional stuff. I got to jump in on this, on the Go. inside. And I want to talk about The Insider later, because that movie's amazing. Yes, it is. There's a scene in The Insider where um, Al Pacino, he plays the producer uh, on 60 Minutes, and he, he goes upstairs 
to the rooftop of the building. And I don't even know if you remember this, but like he goes upstairs and it's like this really cool shot of him. Like he's kind of like rubbing his head and, and the camera's behind him. And you see like in the back of his head and he's got his head down and you see like New York behind him. And that ended up that shot that literally that shot ended up being the, the, the visual that they used for the teaser poster for that film. So I have this poster because I collected posters through the years. It's a white poster, right? Jason, they do not make posters like this. So this is a white poster. It's pure white. All it has is one horizontal stripe at the top of that image of Pacino, with, like with his head down. It's really beautiful. It's really artful, really cinematic. And all it says is like, it's got like this insider logo on the bottom of it. It just says Russell Crowe, Al Pacino, you know, the, the insider Pacino's name was first, obviously. And it just said like November, you know, a Michael Mann film or something like that. Oh God. The way you, the way you described it reminds me of the way you could describe the old blue note jazz covers, you know, with just the, the one vertical stripe or the one horizontal stripe. And it's just, you know, this subtle image of somebody looking really, really cool, you know, cause that's what, you know, the jazz musicians who played at blue note were just cool. Um, Oh man, I want to see that because you do have some great one shoots. You've got a is that a, that's a two thousand one behind you right now? Isn't that, that, is, that, 2001 that is a Space that is yeah. a large French uh, two thousand one. So the the influence of Kubrick, I think, on Michael Mann isn't always overt. It is subtle. He doesn't do the one perspective shots that Kubrick was really really exceptional at. The Wes Anderson has you know taken to other levels. But he's got a way of viewing the world that is not always crystallized, but is just fuzzy enough to add magic and depth to what you're looking at to to entice you into more. You want to see more of it. Again, going back to the opening shot, the steam coming off the L.A. subway. I didn't even know L.A. had subways when I was that age. But the steam coming off of it and then out of that mist comes this magic, dark magic spell that is Neil McCauley. And he's already on a mission. Like, we find him, we meet him, he's already on mission. You know, he's there to, um, you just, to steal the, uh, the ambulance. But as yeah. you watch through that, again, there's all these subtle details that is a combination of Michael Mann's attention to detail and De Niro's studious, fastidious attention and adherence to the method. Watch him as he goes through that hospital. He doesn't touch anything with his hands. He's got the clipboard under his elbow, and rather than hitting the button with his fingertips, he uses his elbow because he doesn't want to get pinched, and he's just observing and absorbing everything, observing and absorbing everything that's around him. And then, as he's walking out toward the ambulance, there's that directly overhead shot, that bird's eye view shot, and you see the arrow, the white arrow on the black asphalt turning to the right, and another one turning to the left as De Niro walks right between the two, and it's like... It's pure cinema, and it's Michael Mann already letting you know what he's capable of doing. And it's wordless. I never would have necessarily said that Kubrick and or Mann are similar, but I do think that their, their attention to detail, as you said, um, getting take after take and making sure that everything is, is framed just right, um, is not many filmmakers, I would say, kind of rival those two guys as far as their, their uh, level of expertise in that regard. This is a top... 10 not just crime film for you this is the top 10 all-timer for you isn't it this is an all-timer i remember um when the pandemic first started several years ago there was like this thing that was going around facebook for a week or two because everybody was at home and everybody was bored 
And uh, it was all something about like list your top 10 movies as, you know, as, as original as that is. Sure. Um, as an exercise, right. let's have some fun. Right. right. Exactly. And like, I, I remember my brother did it and Nick did it and a bunch of people did it, but like I ended up doing it obviously. And, and I, I took really serious time to really think about what my top 10 films were. Uh, but I'm fairly certain I'd have to go back and look it up, but I'm pretty sure I had heat in the top 10. Uh, it's, it's right. It's right there for me. I, I did so much extensive prep for this podcast that, I don't think I mentioned this to you that I watched L.A. Takedown. L.A. Takedown was, was it was it was the pilot for a Correct. television series. Correct. That never got aired. Correct. Well, the, the, the pilot did, but they didn't pick up the series. There's a lot of reasons that people speculate as to why it didn't get picked up. the The lead performances were not that great. They were not. And also, the violence in that was just way too much for network television. Yeah, let's sign off on the on the on the bank shootout. <laughs> but what got me sort of fascinated by it was the fact that if if what it would have happened if it did get picked up, right? Because if it did get picked up, there's a really good chance that Heat never becomes a movie. So look, think about this, right? Michael Mann writes this the sprawling screenplay. It's he wrote it in the late seventies. It's been sitting around for a long time. He had this this itch to get it done. He goes to NBC. He's coming. He's got a lot of juice after Miami Vice because he created that. So now he, here he is in the late eighties. They, they make this pilot. I think he has every expectation of turning this into a series. The NBC executives did not like the, the lead actor who played Vincent, this guy named uh, the late Scott Plank. Um, having watched L.A. Takedown, I don't disagree with NBC. He wasn't very good. It just wasn't right. So they, they basically said, well, we're not making the show. NBC decides to air it, as you said, as a, as a made-for-TV film. It, it was premiered in August of 89. And um, not very good. The thing that sort of surprised me by it, a couple things. One is like word for word, there is all kinds of heat all over this film, like lines of dialogue that you and I both know very, very well in the film. Heat originated in L.A. Takedown. So that part was was pretty amazing. But um, I was also just really surprised on how poorly made it was, like how and I and, and they, they shot it in 19 days and they did it fast. And, you know, for Michael Mann, who. Three years later, goes on to make Last of the Mohicans, which you referenced earlier, which is a phenomenal film. That he made something like this for TV only three years before that. It's it's brutal, and well, it's a great sliding doors moment, like you said. If LA Takedown gets picked up, we have this sliding doors moment where do I go back? Does Michael Mann go back and revisit this later? You know, with the juice, no pun intended. Um, that Pacino and De Niro would bring to it with that cast of characters and obviously a much, much greater budget um, and all the time in the world being a prestigious filmmaker and all that. Uh, probably not, you know. And then, again, there are some things that are considered damaged goods. People don't want to touch certain material, this, that, the other. I'm limitlessly thankful that they left it so that man could sift through it again. Because, again, this, the story that this is based on took place in the early 1960s. Yep. And man had been shopping this and kicking this around. He's been doing this. Well, the book Heat 2 picks up with a lot of these characters, introduces some, we pick up after him. This has been mulling in the, around in his head for the last 45 years easily. A true passion project in every respect. And what's great about that is oftentimes passion projects die miserable, lonely, agonizing deaths. Looking at you, Battleship Earth. <laughs> um, this one was in the hands of a genuine craftsman and a true master who waited for the exact right time to uncork this. It wouldn't surprise me if he had 
three or four hundred pages on every single character that he's invented here. Interesting. When he revisited the script in, in 94 and got it ready, he showed it to producer Art Linson, who um, is obviously an acclaimed producer, has done all kinds of films. And he had told Linson that, you know, we need to try to find a good director for this. And I think like Linson was the guy who said, Michael, you are you are insane if you're not thinking of, of directing this film. And I guess like Michael went home that night and thought about it and he woke up the next day and he called him. He's like, you're right. I guess I do need to direct this. And I think on that discussion is when they both realized they needed Pacino and De Niro. And they, they quickly went out and got both of those guys to commit very, very shortly after that. What kind of clout do you have to have to be like, oh, let's just go get Pacino and De Niro right now. Let's just go do that real quick. Incredible. <laughs> Fucking three Academy Awards between the two of them. God. And probably they probably deserve five. If you come across this film on cable, you know, it is three hours, two hours, 40 something minutes, whatever it is, long film. Um, at any time of night, if you come across heat, there's a good chance you're going to put the remote down and commit um, to a good, good portion of it, if not to the rest of the to the ending. But you, you have some thoughts on films that um, qualify for the remote test. Tell me a little bit more about this. So I've created my own scale. It's called the remote throwdown rating on a scale of one to 10 batteries. And the idea behind this is it factors in not just how much, how great a particular film is, but how easily it is to watch and digest. Yep. So for example, Apocalypse Now is a fantastic film, but it's not a thing you're just going to casually throw on. That's not real. Um, uh, Diabolique. Right, an amazing film, a subtle study in in terror. Not a film you're just going to go, hey, let's just slam into Diabolique right now, or you know what? I feel really feel like watching The Thin Red Line right now by Terrence Malick. You know, it's not. No, they're great in and of themselves. What's another one? Oh, okay, so Breathless, for example. Godard's Breathless is changed cinema. It literally changed the way filmmakers looked at and thought about film. But it's not a thing you're just going to casually put on. It's just not. Whereas the remote throwdown rating factors in how good a film is in your own estimation, because that's really what this is about. How good a film is in your own estimation and how easily it is to watch based on your mood and time frame. So, for example, Raiders of the Lost Ark is a 10 batteries film. That's a top tenner. That's like all time. That's the best you can have. Where are you? Yes, exactly. It, it factors in how enjoyable the film is and then how watchable it is so at any point in that film i'm i'm 10 for 10 100 i am dropping the remote it's raiders time sure period the end i don't care if uh you know it's it's game seven of the nba finals if it's the third period and there's five minutes left to go in raiders i'm watching the last five minutes of raiders what's another great film uh oh, bull durham i love bull durham if that's on that's that's a nine and a half batteries film for me you know, but other films that I think that are, we, we talked about Unforgiven before we started recording. Yep. Unforgiven is my favorite Western of all time, but that takes a certain mindset for me, at least personally to be in. I can't just, you know, if it's Saturday evening, well, let's, you know, let's, let's get into some William Money bloodbath and gore, you know, Western revisionist deconstruction takes on some things. No, that's not how that works. So you factor in how enjoyable a film is. Um, and how good it is in your own estimation. And so by those standards, I give Heat nine and a half batteries. And, the, and only half. Reason, the only reason I'm taking that half off is because you cannot jump into Heat at any given point. And what I mean is, 
up to the cutoff points the last third of the film. Yep. If you come in after that, nope. Nope. It's it's that's the that's the the reason for taking away the half a battery. It's just not real. Because I require that build up because there's so much tension that's built as you get to know these characters and you get to see these characters interact as the cat and mouse game continues throughout the film. I require that. If I come in and Natalie Portman's character is in the bathtub, nope, I can't. I can't, you know, as much as I want to. But what I would do is I would go, oh, you know what? I should rewatch Heat and I'll just put it on because I own the film. The saga nature of the film, which we talked about earlier, is definitely what makes that movie so satisfying. It's it's the entire journey that you take from that opening shot with the subway to the very end. Um, all right, so we got we to gotta talk a minute on some other films that are – I want to hear some batteries from you. So two Swayze films come to mind for, for this remote <laughs> skill. And I think they're both very high number of batteries. So I'm curious how many batteries – um, Roadhouse would be one for me that you can come in at any time and just pick up on Dalton and, and just sort of commit to the end. And I would say Point Break being the other where, you know, Swayze plays uh, Bodie and you got Keanu Reeves as Johnny Utah. Which one? How many batteries for e- either of those? Give, give me okay. the number. Okay. So Roadhouse gets eight batteries, <laughs> right? Point Break gets nine. Kathleen Big- Bigelow directed the shit out of Point Break. She sure did. That's a fun movie. It's the longest skydive in human history. That's just not real. But that's okay. Because we've got Gary Busey, who is sinking his teeth into it, just chewing it up. You know, meatball subs, best I ever had in my life. Two of them. Two of them. Um, (laughs) Patrick Swayze, obviously, as the villain, Bodie. But you don't really quite realize he's the villain. Um, Keanu Reeves is, is the perfect Southern California FBI agent turned surfer boy. Like you're here for it with wild, wild guest appearance or get, you know, get guest appearance cameo by, by Anthony Kiedis of the red hot chili peppers who plays right. war child. Yep. Um, it's out of control. Um, roadhouse, uh, gets, gets eight batteries. And the reason why is because outside of Sam Elliott, I don't, I'm not really interested in the other characters, you know, oh, you Sam can do Elliott's it. It's like the best part of the film. He's saying he's amazing. He's amazing. Right? Like, he shows up, he just looks like like a beat-up pickup truck, right? And that scene when he knows something's about to go down and he takes that gray hair, which just looks always and like... he ties it up. He yeah, ties and he it ties up. it up. And it, he just always looks like he needs a shower, yep. <laughs> you know? A little grubby. I think his name was Wade Garrett, wasn't it? Wade, Wade Garrett. Garrett. And and the Jeff Healy band uh, is the house band in there. They are. Um, famously, Jeff Healy w- was blind. He played the guitar flat. On his uh, on his lap, uh, which is a really wild style. I don't think I've ever seen anybody do. He played like a dobro or like a pedal steel guitar, out of control. And um, the, you can see it. There's a scene where a member of the band leans into his ear and he says, "Wade Garrett," <laughs> and you're like, "Yes." As far as other watchability films that would be rating high with the batteries, I would put on there for my own money. I would say Ocean's Eleven's got to be on the list. And I would say Cocktail. Cocktail. Cocktail's a six battery film. Ocean's Eleven. I'm assuming we're talking about the Danny o- or the Danny Ocean, the um, uh, George Brad Clooney. Pitt, George Clooney. Yeah, imminently yeah. cool. Absolutely rewatchable. That's that's a, that's a ten battery. Remote throwdown rating, 10 batteries. Cocktail is by no means a good film. It's actually a bad film, but it is a good bad film. And you and I need to do an episode one day of the, of, of the great bad movies. 
So getting back, we really need to do that. I would love to. I, here's what I find interesting about Heat. Comes out in '95. It was pretty well acclaimed. It was. It didn't get great reviews across the board, but it got really good reviews. Um, it was a mid-level success. It wasn't by any means like you know the highest-grossing movie of the year, probably because of the length and um, what have you. But um, I feel like Heat's status and its reputation has grown over the last you know nearly 30 years. You know, maybe some people loved it right out of the gate like you did. Took me a little bit more time. But like, why do you think that film? Because I feel like that movie is both like critically acclaimed, but I also feel like it's got a little bit of a a cult like following to it. And I think that's because idiots like you and me really love Michael Mann. But like, why do you think that film took so many years to appreciate this? I have a theory for this as well. This is what I call the Marquee Moon theory. Um, in the 1970s, there was an incredible punk band that came out of the New York City area. Um, they were big at CBGB. The band was called Television. And their debut album was an album called Marquee Moon. And it went under everybody's radar. Nobody knew this record. And then people started digging through. And they started digging through some things. And they were exploring the New York punk scene. And somebody put on this album. And they realized that this album was about 15 years ahead of its time. Nobody who heard this record immediately, this was not a pop record, but everybody who heard that record went out and bought a copy and formed bands. Sure. One of those bands was The Strokes, right? You might have heard of them. Black Party was another one of those bands. Franz Ferdinand Ferdinand heard that album. And so sometimes artists are so ahead of whatever it is they're doing that it takes everybody else so much longer to catch up. To really factor in, because there's, again, there's so many moving parts to this. There's so much going on. And honestly, I think beyond that, beyond the, the Marquee Moon theory here with Heat, is the idea that it wasn't Godfather Part Two. When you attach De Niro and Pacino, that was the hype. Finally, That's how they get, marketed it. That's how they did it in the trailer, I remember. Yep. Right. Finally, we get to see these two actors go head to head. And... It wasn't a gunfight at first. It was a conversation that they had in a diner. That's hard to sell. That's hard to market. And those two guys, they're not action stars. Not what you would traditionally think, especially not in 1995. They weren't the definition of an, of an action star. So you have this slow build, right? You have this slow, methodical ramp, that we got to climb as the tension mounts and burns and builds and audiences wanted a bigger bang. And even the gunfights, and there are a lot of gunfights in heat, even the gunfights are methodical, you know? And also by this point, we've already been introduced to Tarantino. That's right. And it's not that it's not this hilarious tongue-in-cheek, bloodbath. It's not Reservoir Dogs. It's not Pulp Fiction. It's not snappy repartee. Not self-referential. Um, There's no meta element to it like those films had. I agree. Not at all. And so by this point, taste had changed, but Michael Mann is still an old-school filmmaker, and he's still going to do things very deliberately. So I think maybe it was a little out of its time, by which I mean it was 15 years ahead of its time, because people who like film and like cinema love Heat. That's an amazing theory, and I, I would agree with you. I think that's why Christopher Nolan, um, who's on the record, is it's, it's one of his very favorite films. And I think when when Heat celebrated its anniversaries the last several years, 
Um, he he held a, I think he moderated a panel discussion with Man and all the and all the actors in the film because he he holds it in such high esteem. And I think uh, Ben Affleck, who I I do not put at the same level as Chris Nolan as a filmmaker, but has done some really interesting films, um, feels the same. That I think he did extensive um, research for the town when um, he was filming that film, and you know he used heat very much as as an influence. But I think like. I find it really interesting about um, how things were changing. You know, when you when you reference Tarantino in the mid '90s, because he obviously was like the face of the '90s. But if you if you look at Heat, I mean, you got two actors at the sort of at the top of their game, right? But having late late career comebacks, they were having late career comebacks. You got Pacino. I would say that Pacino had like one more great performance in him after Heat. He did The Insider, and I would put that. As another really terrific, uh, you know, role for him, you can make the argument that there were some there were some really great elements to what he did in any given Sunday, but the movie wasn't quite quite that. But um, he didn't really do much after that, and I think you know De Niro, you know, shortly after Heat, you know, he's he's within a few years he's in Meet the Parents, you know, which is sure. a, a, a funny movie, but De Niro is doing all kinds of paycheck films from that point forward. So it's interesting that man got, got these guys in 95 when, you know, they're at the peak of their abilities. You go back and watch heat. Now they both look good. Neither of them have aged at this point. They both look young ish and, you know, older, but you're not old, you know? Right. And like, they just like, what a, what a moment of time to capture these two guys. Cause it changed quickly after that. A, a bit of kismet there because we, we, we will factor in who Neil McCauley is. This is a very methodical guy. He's very thoughtful, again, observing and absorbing. That's what this man does. That's an older man's mentality, right? This is, no, well, like that great scene in the, in the coffee shop, you know, do you see, see me doing thrill-seeking liquor store holdups with a Born to Loose tattoo on my chest? <laughs> and Pacino says, no, I do not, you know? And then on the flip side of that, Hannah is a stalker. He's an experienced hunter. This is not his first case. He's a lieutenant in a major crimes unit. You don't get to be there by accident. This is a man who knows how to be a detective. And that's really what this is about. Yeah, we get the guns and we get the chases and all that stuff. But really, at the root of this, this is a detective story. And he is a hell of a detective. And you don't get there when you're 25 or 30, it takes a, an older man's intuition, an older man's skill, right? That you hone over years. That age that Pacino and De Niro are at is perfect. Cast younger guys to help them out. Absolutely. You sure. know, younger guys on the come up. Val Kilmer's several years younger than De Niro. An Sizemore, incredible number two. A, Tom Sizemore. Yeah. Right. So this whole cast of characters is experienced and they're being led by Macaulay, right? The best at his, at what he does. And then all those officers working for Hannah, um, this is also, I think it also speaks volumes about how great the supporting cast is, because there's a healthy ego in both Pacino and De Niro, and they're not trying to get blown off the screen. You can make a case that Val Kilmer deserves two Academy Awards. You can make a case that he deserves a Best Actor for Jim Morrison in The Doors, and you can make a case he deserves Best Supporting Actor for Doc Holliday in Tombstone. Val Kilmer's a hell of an actor, I agree. right, with, with some great chops. That's your number two. You can't get blown off the stage, off the screen by your number two, man. And then you've got, um, oh, God, you got Wes Studi, who played Geronimo. And Wes Studi's a hell of an actor. He's accomplished on the screen. You've got, you've got all kinds of people in that film. So you've got this incredible cast of characters. I mean... Ashley Judd is an afterthought in this movie, and she's a fine actress. So it's like, 
you've got all this incredible talent and you have to get up above that. And you're being propelled to these greater heights by a guy who's as meticulous as Michael Mann is. That's significant. And I think going back to what you said about age and and you know, taking time, and I, I guess maybe that explains why this film, you know, sat in his his drawer for so many years. That screenplay, I should say, not the film, but the script sat there for such a long time. And you know, he had reached the right point of his career as a filmmaker, as a as a visionary filmmaker, to finally you know adapt it the way he always envisioned. And L.A. Takedown was not that. So the Oscars were a couple of days ago. Um, mm. You know, everything, everywhere, all at once, clean house. It won just about all the major awards. It was up against, it was up for. One of the big, you know, Oscar crimes of the of the 90s, in my opinion, is that in the 95 Oscar year, Heat was not nominated for one Academy Award. Completely shut out. Completely. It's really kind of shocking. And, you know, that year was the year that Braveheart won. And I'm on the record. I'm a big Braveheart fan. I, I liked that film. So like, I do I think it's better than Heat? I do not. Um, but that was the same year that Babe, the movie about the pig, was up for Best Picture. This movie, Heat, is there's so many brilliant things about this film, right? Everything from the writing, the script that we've already talked about, his direction, the actors, which we just referenced, editing, score, sound design. There's a million things that this film is throwing fastballs on. And if it was released today, whether it be on Netflix or Amazon or in the theater from a studio, Heat. The same film released today would be up for like 15 Oscars. Yes. There's, there's no doubt. Yes. And like, how did it, how did, where did it go wrong in 1995? I don't know who Michael Mann pissed off. I, I have no idea. But even if he had pissed somebody off, Dante Spinati hasn't pissed anybody off. Uh, De Niro and Pacino are Academy darlings. Val Kilmer's been nominated a couple times. What? what? We can't even, we can't get. Well, okay, let me see. James Cromwell got a, an acting nom in Babe. He got Best Supporting Actor nomination for Babe. We can't we can't slide Val Kilmer or even don't you know what? Don't even let De Niro be the best actor. Let let him slide into the Best Supporting Actor role. Sure, at least a nom, right? I've got what else came out? Um, okay, Kevin Spacey for The Usual Suspects. I've, I've got no beef with The Usual Suspects. Nope, it's it's also it's also a masterpiece. Let's see. Um, Apollo 13 was that year? See, I have a problem with Ron Howard films. <laughs> I, I just do. I, I just Ron Howard is the safest working director in all of Hollywood. He, he takes what ordinarily would be an incredible script and he just paps it up. It's like, could you imagine if Christopher Nolan got his hands on Apollo 13? Uh, yeah, I could. I could see that. 100%, right? So, so Nick Cage gets a nom and Nick Cage was... I mean, that was a gut-wrenching-ass performance for sure. Richard Dreyfuss, surprise nomination for, for Mr. Holland's Opus. And that's I got a soft spot for that movie. I love that movie. Big Jim Kamlick film, by the way. My brother, big fan of that movie. Anthony Hopkins for Nixon is inexplicable. Yeah, that's that's got to go. Right, nope. Give me Pacino or give me De Niro. I don't care. Um, Sean Penn for Dead Men Walking. Okay, he was... Okay. Sure. The, okay, got it. No problem. Massimo Trossi for Il Postino, The Postman. You having a lot of Il Postino conversations lately, Dennis? That how, many, come up? how many batteries is that film, Jason? I, I, I've never even seen No, actually, I have seen it. I saw it once because it was nominated. I now want to know what the hell beat Heat. Sure. I can't get a nom for Heat, but but Il Postino gets gets a nom. And then Massimo Tracy, I'm sure he's a fantastic actor. Um, not, I haven't had a Massimo Tracy conversation literally ever until just now. 
It's not real, man. No one's having those chats. No one's talking about Babe right now. No, no men our age are hanging out in a bar right now having a drink, you know, finishing up a taco, talking about, you know what was deeply underrated? Babe. You're not even buying that for your kids. I don't know men our age who, is, who are buying that film for their children. It's nonsense and it's bullshit. We couldn't slide De Niro or Pacino or both of them into those roles. Anthony Hopkins for Nixon is just, that's an outrage. And Massimo Troisi for Il Postino. Okay, I get it. The Academy wants to give some love to some foreign films. Okay. No, I'm not buying it, dude. I'm not buying it. I'm just not. I don't Tim, even know. Tim, don't Tim even Roth know. and Rob Roy. Tim Roth and Rob Roy. Tim Roth's a great actor. I've got a lot of love for Tim Roth, right? Big fan of Tarantino. You know, he loves working with Tarantino. Rob Roy, though, Rob Roy is perhaps Tim Roth's least interesting film. It's not a good movie. It was a poor man's Braveheart. Thank you. (laughs) Bullshit. Batman fucking forever got a nomination and he did not. Not even for the technical awards. I don't even know how to get this conversation back. So... When I watch Heat, the first like, 10 minutes of this film, right, we, we've already talked about De Niro and the subway. He comes in and, and, all, and so forth. But, like, the, 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 you know, the, the armored truck heist, which basically opens this film, is like, is like a, a class and, like, sound design. If you stop and just watch that film and even just close your eyes and just listen to the sound that Michael Mann has in that sequence when, when the truck gets robbed um, – the, 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 the use of music, the, the, the noise of the truck, the gunfire, all of it. It's the first 10 minutes. And then I'm not even talking about like later in the film when Vincent is in the helicopter and he's hovering over downtown L.A. It's dark and he's, he's tracking Neil in his car and he's like and you hear the music and you see the lights. It's like the, the sound in that sequence is insane. Like I, I don't understand how that not got recognized. It. I'm so glad you mentioned that because that sounds like that semi is coming from the left side of my skull and smashing right through it out the other side. And then when he sets off that shape charge and all the windows and the cars blow out. Yep. If you're set to a normal, your normal television volume, you've got your surround sound on whatever it is you're listening to. However, you got it set up. You're listening for the normal levels. You got your shit, right? You got your movie set up. You got your popcorn. You're ready to tune in. Everything right there goes into the red, but it's not modulated. It's not distorted. I don't know how they pulled this off. I don't know what audio techniques they, they used, but I, there's probably still trying to figure out how the hell they did that in sound design school, in film school, in an After Effects. It's out of control. It's out of control. When the gunfire starts, it's all over. And this is throughout the entire film. The, the bank robbery scene is off the charts. Which we haven't even still- talked about yet. <laughs> But you can still clearly hear everybody's voices as well. I don't, it's a masterclass. And I, once again, Batman Forever got a nomination and he didn't get any, not even in any of the technical damn awards. It's a crime against humanity. I want to slap everybody at the Oscars anyway for the shit they pulled on Denzel Washington, not giving it to Malcolm X. You owe James Cromwell an apology. You just took a shot at him for Babe, but he's your boy. He's in LA Confidential. Okay, he is exceptional in LA Confidential, but not for Babe. Not for Babe. He was better in the Green Mile. And that Green Mile is a steamy pile of shit. <laughs> Green Mile is just sentimental trash, man. Stop it with that. All right. It, you know what um, it, was? it was? It was it was Shawshank Redemption light. It was magical Shawshank Redemption. Michael Mann's Heat, the, one of the great films of one of the great directors ever. 
not nominated. I just, I don't understand it. I'll never understand it. Um, I'm shaking my head. I'll continue to shake my head. Uh, let's take a break. And then we're going to, we're going to go into my, my favorite section here. Okay. This episode of Back by Popular Demand is sponsored by our good friends at the Waffle Company, the first ever get and give pet bed company in the world, which means for every bed sold, they donate a bed to a shelter dog in need. You know, I have to admit something. I've become that guy who basically uses social media to simply post pictures of my dogs. It's true. Sure, I may plug this podcast across social time to time and have been known to express my disappointment in another unwanted Hollywood reboot. I can't believe they are remaking Roadhouse. But let's be honest, what I enjoy doing most is posting adorable pictures of my two boxers. And most of those photos feature my girls lounging on their waffle beds. Waffle beds are made with organic cotton canvas and filled with pure K-pop cotton, which is lightweight, hypoallergenic, and eco-friendly. And the beds come with two washable exterior layers that are very easy to reassemble once clean. We all love our dogs, and if you like watching them sleep just like I do, get them a waffle. By doing so, you're ensuring a shelter dog can sleep better at night, which should make you sleep better at night. But nobody wants to see a photo of you sleeping. Just your dog, okay? You can order them at waffleco.com, just like the breakfast waffle, but with an O. Buy one today and use the promo code Dennis20 to receive a 20% discount off your purchase. The Waffle Company is based in Columbus, Ohio, and all of its products are made with great care right here in the USA. Okay, let's get back to the show. When these guys walk out the door of whatever score they're going to take next, they're going to have the surprise of a lifetime. All right, Jason, I call this next section, Why Heat Kicks Total Ass. Now, we've already sort of touched on (laughs) many of the reasons, but I'm going to leave it to you. You start us off on just give me like any one of of the many reasons why this film kicks total ass. Okay, I prepped for this. I got I got you. (laughs) This is why heat kicks total ass. You give me anything about the criminal underground. And I'm, I'm in. I'm in. You have my attention. When Michael Mann says, I'm making an L.A. underground crime saga, you have my full attention. It kicks ass for a lot of the reasons we already talked about. The sound is out of control. The cinematography is miles past exceptional. There are so many beautiful cinematic touches when Macaulay has to kill Trejo. You know what's going to happen. He doesn't have to show you. What's he do? He comes out of the apartment. He comes down a hundred yards, yep. frames the frames the house, cantilevered on the edge of a cliff, and you see the the the, the gun muzzle flash uh, set against the backdrop of the the L.A. night. Oh my God! The wizardry it takes to pull off what they did as the flights are taking off and landing in the ending scene. Yep. To have all those shadows, you can't control what a plane's going to do. You have to play with those shadows and see what's going to happen so everything is swirling around you. And to maintain control of that, that's a maelstrom. But all that aside, the sound, the technical direction, the art, okay, cool. The attitudes of everybody make this film so fucking cool. 
it kicks so much ass because everybody is exceptional at what they do. And I'm not talking about the actors. I'm talking about the roles they play. Sure. Vincent Hanna, who you can tell probably has a small cocaine problem, right? Yep. His wife, um, Diane Venora, oh my God, she is just this elegant woman who just vivisects Hannah as they're on the tail end of their marriage. Um, Wayne Grow. We haven't even talked about Wayne Grow, one of the more compelling characters. Not a good character, um, but a compelling one. Um, he's sitting in a bar, and he's smoking a cigarette, and he's, you know, he's talking to that guy. He's trying to get put onto a job, and he says, I am a cowboy, and I'm looking for anything heavy. And you're like, okay. Tom Sizemore going toe-to-toe with Robert De Niro. For me, the action is, is the, juice. the juice. Everybody is exceptional. Everybody is cool. Um, you, you give me a criminal underworld and then you world build on top of that because what we understand, and this is the great, cause we don't need exposition to understand this. You know, that Neil and Chris are incredible at what they do a hundred percent. And that's all you need to know. And you see them in various cons and heists. We first meet Chris, he's buying, you know, explosives, Right, but you also know that he's he's gifted with a pistol in his hand. He's great with with electronics. Neil, the 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 plan guy, the the mastermind behind all of this. Right, career criminals with Tom Sizemore. Okay, then you've got Drucker. Right, Vincent Hanna's number two. He is cool. Everybody in this has their role to play, and they crush it. But it's not, because, it's not like fake cool. It's not like Hollywood over the top cool. It's authentic cool, right? Like it's, almost, it's, it's exactly that. It's almost like effortlessly cool. And, and to your point, like going back to Wayne Grow, who is like obviously just a horrible, horrible human being. But like what a what a what a great character. What a great performance. You know what? You said something interesting, and I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I want to capture the Wayne Grow thing for a second. Like earlier, you talked about how when you watch a movie like Heat, and after every viewing, you you pick up new things, right? For sure. The Wayne Grow character is the like the foundation of this film. And it, you may not even realize it when you see Heat for the first time or maybe even the second time. But when you watch it repeatedly, you realize that Wayne Grow is the character that sets forth the entire set of events, sequence of events in that film from the very beginning when he shoots the when he shoots the guard at the truck heist. And everything that happens after that, Wayne Grow is like the centerpiece. Everything happens around him. And if he doesn't do things, doesn't make certain actions in that film, nothing happens. Spoiler alert here. I think, in my head at least, I, I imagine a world in, in, in the heat Los Angeles in which a couple days afterward, when the, the rapes of, of prostitutes, the rapes and murders of prostitutes stops yep and hannah eventually starts putting it together it was wayne grow and i i want hannah to write out a thank you letter to dead neil mccauley for taking out wayne grow because he solved those rape mur- those murders and rapes for him he he solved that for him he handed that to him he said here it's done i got you don't worry you got me i got i got your back it's okay here you can take these take them off your you can put them on the down list because i killed the guy that called those Here's the other thing, too, that I love about this, the subtlety of it. First viewing, I didn't realize it was Wayne Grow who was committing all those murders and rapes. I didn't realize that. I, I, like When I said you can't cut a whole lot from this film, that scene 
where Hannah has to go to the crime scene and the, and the mother of the, the dead prostitute, sex worker, I should say, the dead sex worker, she gets, you know, someone called her and she's freaking out. So now he has to deal with that as he well. He hugs her. Yeah, he hugs her. Right. Um, all the, You can't cut that scene out because that connects Wayne Grow to what just happened. Yep. And then you realize just what an awful piece of shit Wayne Grow is. Now, here's what's interesting. By movie justice rules, it has to be one of the bad guys who kills Wayne Grow. It has to be. Because there's a, there's a code, there's a code behind that, right? Right. It's and that's why Macaulay's pissed off when, when Wayne Grow smokes the security guard, right? He was just looking for a gunfight. That's all he was doing. He just wanted it and he found any reason. He had pistol whipped the guy. Sizemore tells him, Hey, you see that shit that's coming out of their ears? They can't fucking hear you, man. And they're going to kill him. You know, that diner scene is elaborately set up. You might not notice it at first. Totally. But my, my, my guy gets up and goes and sits at the diner counter away from the table. Trejo says he has to go to the bathroom. What do we know he's doing? Well, we find out he's prepping the, 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 you know, the, the murder trunk you know, with the garbage bags inside because that's where they're going to dump Wangro. He's got to go. And they're going to do him. He gets away. But he can't control himself because he's a sex, he's a serial predator, he's a sex offender, he's a piece of shit. By movie justice rules, the bad guy's got to do him. It's got to be the bad guys. You are rooting for De Niro, Neil, to, to, to kill Wienergrow, right? Like, you want to see that. I mean, like, if I may, just for a second, like, in, in that sequence at the end of the hotel, when you know, he pulls the fire alarm, there's a lot of activity going on. People are leaving the hotel and, and, and Neil goes in to kill Wingrow. Wingrow's at the door. He knows it's Neil behind the door. He knows he's there. hundred percent. He's like, let's talk about this brother. And yeah. you know, Neil kicks the door down. He shoot, he blows him away. He's like, look at me. And he, he makes him look at him and he blows him away. Right. And then man does this brilliant thing. Right. And his editors, like they cut away from that for a second and they show like people in the hallway or people leaving the, the hotel again. But then he cuts back one more time and you see Wingro on the on the sofa in the hotel room in his white robe and he's got a big, you know, bullets in him. And like and that shot is there for like a second. But you see you see it one more time. He didn't need to show that again. But like that's the brilliance of man that he has to show that one shot of Wingro dead one more time. Incredible. I don't know if you notice this, but next time you watch it, Wingro's got his arms spread out to the side, right? With that hole in his chest. And this echoes the Nazi eagle, the iron eagle that he's got tattooed on his chest. Oh, his, I never the, thought about that. The wings are spread wide. It comes down, and, and you've seen it before. You saw it in Raiders of the Lost Ark. You saw it in Inglorious Bastards, that iron eagle, right? And it comes down, and inside a circle is the swastika. That's just about where Neil McCulley put those bullet holes. And so I think wouldn't surprise me if Michael Mann said, this guy's a Nazi. Let's string him up like one. It's not... And is never the intention of Macaulay's crew to kill people. That's not what they're after. They're after the money. They're after the goods, the loot, whatever. He makes this clear in the bank robbery. But when he kills that innocent, he's already pissed off about that security guard. He doesn't know about the rapes, but Wangro has to go and he has to go by vigilante justice. Them's the rules. Yeah, I, I want to go back to what you said about um, when you talked about De Niro and, and Val Kilmer, who plays uh, Chris Chihalis, Um you know, you talked about how they're both like really good at what they do, right? De Niro is like this, this, um, he's extremely detailed. He's a perfectionist and, you know, Val Kilmer is a good gunman and whatnot. But what I think one of the best things about this film, which you don't see anywhere else is like the fact that you, these main characters, you there's, I mean, the main themes of this film are all about addiction. 
They're about loneliness. They're about perfectionism. Um, perfectionism, sorry. And you see it on 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 both ends for each character. So you got you got Neil, right? Neil is this this master thief. He's phenomenal at what he does. He's very successful at what he does. Very thoughtful about what he does. Yet he go, they show him going home to his empty place in Malibu, right? And there's no furniture. There's a sofa, and like he puts his gun on, on the on the table, and he's looking out at the ocean by himself, right? You got Chris, who's very good at what he does. Yet he goes home. You know that he's a he's a gambling junkie. He's got marital problems. He's got a wife that's one foot out the door. You got Vincent Hanna, as you mentioned earlier, his, his wife is riding him there. He's on his third marriage. He's a phenomenal Lieutenant, but he's a bad husband. You know, he's married to his job. He's not really married to his wife. You, you can keep going, right? The sure. fact that Man, Michael Mann takes his time and provides a such depth of character. I mean, this is a movie that even introduces a, a, I would even call like a fourth level character, which is an ex con named, you know, Don Breeden, who's played by Dennis Haysbert, who is a short order, short order cook at the diner. Like, what are you doing? Like, why, why are you even like showing us this guy? It doesn't make any sense, but it's great. And like, he right. takes his time showing these characters and, and you ended up sympathizing for people that you don't normally sympathize for. And that is what's brilliant about this film. That honestly, one of the, one of the best scenes in the movie is that really subtle moment. It's a very quiet, quick scene of Don Breeden and his, I don't know, wife or girlfriend. Yep. Um, and she tells him that she's proud of him. And he, does, he can't understand, well, you're proud of me? You know, because he's trying, he's making an effort. And so now you're emotionally attached, you're connected to this, and then in an instant, because he's tired of, and let's be honest, his boss at the diner was an absolute prick. He and was. <laughs> when, 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 when Braden just throws his head to the wall and like basically kicks him out, I was like, oh, yeah, he had it coming. He had that coming. Um, he didn't deserve to get killed, but he definitely had an ass whooping coming. And so even by movie vigilante justice, that was warranted. Um, he throws it all away in an instant, you know, because he's tired of this. He's tired of this life of not having that score, of not having that decency, of that basic human respect. Um, so you develop a, a measure of empathy for that, for that character. It's incredible. You could tell that man as the director is influencing what the actor is doing. Like you talked about the diner scene. Let's go back to that for a minute. Wayne grows eating his apple pie and he's like, I had to get it on. I had to get it on. Right. right? And like, and then De Niro comes in and he sits next to him and he takes his head and he, he slams his head down on the, in the table. Right. And then they show, they cut to another guy in another booth looking over at him. Right. Sizemore looks up at this guy, right? And he kind of just gives him that look. It's like yeah. the fucking best look that Tom Sizemore has ever fucking done in a film ever. And the guy just goes right back to reading his paper. You know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. 100%. I love that moment because the guy looks over like, what's going on? Because you can tell the guy's a little bit heavier. He's like, what's going on? And then Sizemore just leans back over and you're like, and the guy just quietly sits himself right back up and goes back to reading his paper. Doesn't even say a word. He just looks at Unbelievable. Like it's, it's that kind of stuff that man, like, uh, man, Tom Sizemore, uh, that's, I, I, I love that guy. I, I loved what he did in true romance. I loved what he did in natural born killers as, as one of those actors that just like he had his moment in the nineties, right. Where he was just he sure. was kind of hit, hitting him for a while. And I know the guy had a lot of, a lot of problems, but let's talk about the music. There's two things that when I watch it, I, I'm just like, Fucking Michael Mann, right? And we, and we both know that Michael Mann is is a genius when it comes to using music in his films. It's always played a key character in everything that he does, whether it be a score or you know a use of actual you know songs. But like there's a there's a shot in in Heat where 
they show Vincent. It's late at night. He's driving to that that bar that he's going to go meet with Albert and the and the buddy that Albert um, is brought to meet Vincent. And he's in his car and he's driving down some boulevard in L.A. And they're playing a track from a obscure album that came out from U2 and and Brian Eno in the mid '90s called Passengers when U2 was kind of screwing around and doing like experimental film music for movies that didn't even exist. Right. That's what passengers was. And there's a track. That sounds like a Brian Eno project. It does. Right. And there's a track on that album, which I happen to love. And Michael Mann used it in heat. Like that is like next level of like detail, right? Like nobody knows that song. Well, so Brian, Eno, first of all, the, the, the founding figurehead of, of ambient music it just makes sense. He published a book many years ago called um, "The Instrument" or "The Studio as an Instrument," um, and you two definitely, you know, Brian Eno is that guy. Um, Hall of Famer with Roxy Music production with David Bowie, David sure. Byrne, and the Talking Heads. So you brought this up uh, earlier: the helicopter scene where he's trying to find Macaulay. He finds Macaulay, and, he, and Macaulay's driving down the freeway and. That song is actually my favorite song, even more so. That's a Moby track as well. More so than God Moving Over the Face of the Waters, that's New Dawn Fades. And it's propulsive, and it's nervy, and it's just this incredible intense energy, because the hunt's on. The hunt is on, literally and figuratively, because you know he's flying around in a helicopter. Also, what kind of clout do you have to, to get a helicopter for a guy that you don't even have a warrant out for yet, you know? <laughs> so, and he finds his man, because that's what Vincent Hanna does, because he's so obsessive. Um, that new dawn fades, every time that comes on, I, I, I find myself rocking, like literally rocking. Um, and when a, when, a, when a film can use music that effectively, where I have a kinetic response, um, I, it's over. It's right there. That tells you if I'm physically moving in a movie theater or on the cushions of my couch because of what you've done, you have my complete attention. I am wrapped forever. I had the exact same reaction to the other Moby song that he plays at the end, which you just referenced. But when, you know, at the very last shot of the film, when Vincent puts down Neil, you know, he holds his hand and he's like, I told you I'm never going to go back. And like they're holding hands and they, they you pan back and you see the the airport and like they start playing the Moby music. When I watch it, I still get this feeling to this day when I watch this film. I get goosebumps every time that music comes on and they play it. And I think it's like if I were a filmmaker, which I'm not, I, I would probably like would hope that I would make a similar choice as an art as an artist. Like yeah. Michael Mann, he chose that music very purposefully. Like it's it's just it ends, it's like this three-hour saga is finally coming to a close. He's finally you as a viewer letting you catch your breath. And I'm going to play this Moby music, which is very beautiful, very searing, very elegant over a crime drama. And it's like, and then it just says a Michael Mann film on credits. Fuck. It's unbelievable. Like that's an unbelievable decision as a filmmaker. Like what the balls to do that is amazing. Absolutely. Other thing I want to say about this is check out the music of one William Orbit. William Orbit contributes a lot of the scores and a lot of other songs within the film. William Orbit is a sort of hermetic wunderkind. He's a madman. Dabbles in all manner of electronic music, but he's also he's worked with Prince, Madonna, Britney Spears, Beck, Pink, U2, Beth Orton, Queen, and Kraftwerk. 
How's that? Is that is that okay? Is that you, you even threw Beth Orton in there? Very impressive. Hundred percent. He does a version of Barber's Adagio from Strings. That's such a gut punch. It rivals that of the Adagio in Strings um, from Platoon when Sergeant Elias dies. Um, he does an electronic version of it that will. If electronic music needs soul, look no further than William Moore, but check out that guy's music. The only other time that in a man film that I remember like the music connecting with me as well as it did was there's a, and I think you're going to, you're, you're going to know this scene. It's in collateral when um, obviously another character named Vincent, which is who Tom Cruise plays. He's in um, the backseat of, of Jamie Foxx's uh, taxi and it's later in the film and they've already, he's already killed a couple people and they're at a, like a red light and they show that wolf run across the street. Um, and it, you know how he shot that movie. It's all digital cameras. Everything is very gr- grainy and granular. And sure. you see this wolf kind of just like quickly like walk across the road and, and Tom Cruise kind of c- catches it at the corner of his eye. And then they start playing Chris Cornell. It's just like this really, really powerful. Doesn't really serve the film by any means, but it's Michael Mann being Michael Mann. And I love everything about it. <laughs> um, yes. Like you said, Michael Mann being Michael Mann. You have my full attention, man. Let's go. Even Okay, so you said Heat, top 10 film of all, of, of all time for you. Okay, I can't do that, right? Um, I can't do it with music either. I, I, I can't. Um, and even if I did, you ask me a month from now, 50-50 odds, 6-5 and pick them, that my list is going to change. So <laughs> what I did do, just for you, just for you, Excited. My top 10 Michael Mann films. Oh, let's do it. Uh, let's get there. I, I love this. Because I was going to ask you about this later, so let's do it now. Okay. Uh, this is my top 10 in ascending order. Oh, for the record, I rank none of these on, on the regular scale. I rank none of these below a 6.0. Okay. Public Enemies, which I have a soft spot for. I really kind of like that movie. Um, Miami Vice, which merits a couple revisions. And I'm talking about the film. I'm talking about the Colin Farrell, Jamie Foxx film. Miami Foxx, which Michael Mann invented back in the 80s, Don Johnson and whatnot. Television series, also legendary and wholly groundbreaking and also bonanza use of music. Nobody had ever used popular music like that. The fact that Michael Mann did just speaks to how in tune he is. I went out and bought a Tommy Shaw album called Girls with Guns because he played it in an episode in Miami Vice. Anyway, continue your list. Ali, uh, which is flawed, but still pretty good. Um, Will Smith turns in a a fantastic performance, as does Jamie Foxx. Manhunter, Thief. James Caan, exceptional. Yep. And there was a period of time when, when a lot of a, a lot of folks don't realize that James Caan was like a top five box office draw he around was, the world. He was a big deal. He was a big damn deal. Last of the Mohicans. Yep. Collateral, The Insider, and of course, number one with a bullet, the one we're talking about right now, Heat. I want to talk about Vice for a second. So like I I'm glad you referenced that. That show was one of my very favorite shows as a kid. You know, I'm a little bit older than you. So that show came out in 84. I'm 13 years old. And like to what you said about the music and Phil Collins and NXS and like he, I mean, they, they played everything in that show. And it's a every, sexy soundtrack. It, it was really incredible. Was. Like every Friday night I, we had a VHS and I would record every episode and I would watch every episode over and over again. But like Miami Vice coming out in 2006, right? 
I think it was 2006, maybe it was 05. It was one of those two years. But like, I felt like the movie, the movie suffered because of the whole, like Jamie Foxx was kind of a big thing at that point. And it's Colin Farrell. It's why are they making a movie about Miami vice? What a cheesy concept, blah, 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 blah. Right. And I think people went into that film with these like expectations or like preconceived notions. that it's going to be cheesy and dumb. Right. And I remember when I watched it in the theater, I, I I was pretty blown away by a lot of what I saw. I thought there were some incredible shots. I mean, like there's a long shot of him on the boat, the go fast boat with with uh, the woman, and like and it's like it's framed and it's centered, and they're and they're hauling ass across the ocean, and you know what I'm talking about, like brilliant stuff. That the shootout at the end is brilliant. Yes, I liked Miami Vice, but Miami Vice kind of got beat up at the time. Nobody really talked about it, and when it came out, very quickly forgotten about. That movie is taking on a whole other life for me over the years. It's on cable constantly. If I go into my room right now and put on stars, Miami Vice is probably on. It's on all the time. And it's another remote movie for me. I wouldn't call it nine batteries, but I definitely like find myself putting the remote down and watching it for a while. And I think if that movie had been released today or even released in 2006 when it came out under a different name, that didn't have the Miami Vice like you know brand equity, right? And it just sure it, it was just a, a a cop drama about a drug cartel with two cops. I think the movie probably would have been really well received, and I think the Miami Viceness of it sort of hurt it. Kind of weighed down by the the, the weight of expectation. Yes, I, I, that's that's valid. Um, so for it took me a second to realize that you were initially gonna you were gonna dovetail into Miami Vice the film. So I got to thinking, and I pulled this up. Going back and rewatching Miami Vice, which I did on, I think, my 06 deployment, the, the series. Yep. So we talked about who's in Heat, right? You got Ashley Judd, who's fine actress. Um, you've got uh, Hank Azaria, right, who's had a, an exceptionally long career, right? Been on The Simpsons for 40 seasons now. It's out of control. Um, Dennis Haysbert, McKelty Washington, Wes Studi. All these Tom Noonan, James, John Voight, <laughs> right? Um, man has a talent for figuring out who's going to be good, that they've got something, that there's a thing in them. This is a list of people that have appeared as villains or as um, side characters on the show. Okay, I love this. I love this. Paul Gleason, famously known as the principal in The Breakfast Club, right? Um, Burt Young. Remember Burt Young? Oh, I remember. Pauly. And I remember that episode as well. Right? Pauly from, from Rocky. Dean Stockwell. Bruce McGill, who's one of those every guys. He's, He's in- awesome. He's awesome. Young Chris Rock. Viggo Mortensen. Benicio Del Toro. Ed O'Neill. Some Montreal musician named Leonard fucking Cohen. Right? Ted Nugent. Melanie Griffith. Young. Young Liam Neeson. John Turturro. McKelty Washington. Um, Miguel Ferreira, um, some Academy Women winning actress named Julia Roberts, Hello, Helena Bonham Carter, Stanley Tucci, Luis Guzman, Pam Greer, Bruce Willis, Sheena Easton, Olivia Brown, James Edward Olmos, and I say this one last because there's a connection here, Dennis Farina. Oh, yeah, he's a man guy. He's a, he's, so, yeah, sure, go, go ahead, go. Michael Mann got this story from a guy that he was palling around with named Chuck Adamson. Chuck Adamson was a Chicago cop who tracked down and chased the real Neil McCulley. Yep. And it ended in a gunfight 
in the street, ugly. And Adamson had nothing but love and, and respect um, for how good the real Neil McCauley was. And he was telling man that, as we see it, the conversation in the diner is almost word for word a conversation that Chuck Adamson had with the actual Neil McCauley. Now, Chuck Adamson was a mentor to some young Chicago cop named Dennis Dennis Farina. Farina was a cop in Chicago. He came up that way. He got turned on by Michael or by Chuck Adamson. They met Michael Mann. He gets cast in some things. He's in Thief. In fact, he almost ends up taking out James Caan in Thief, if you'll recall. And then he still had, I think, a couple more years to go. He still was still wearing the Chicago badge, and he finally took it off and then became this actor that we all know. And he's he delivers a vulgar line like nobody's business. He's hilarious in Guy Ritchie's Snatch. Um, he's really good in Out of Sight by uh, Steven Soderbergh. He's Ray Bones and Get Shorty. He's Ray Bones and Get Shorty. Um, Dennis Frino was just one of those guys, you know, and he's also, like you said, a man guy. And so I love that these connections exist. I have to admit, and you're not going to be surprised by this at all. um, I have every episode of Miami Vice on Blu-ray, proudly. Um, (laughs) You uh, do? Every on Blu-ray, no no less. I got the whole set, the the whole show. Good um, for you, my friend. Here's, Good here's for you. what I'll say about Miami Vice. Like, I, I'm not a fan of the last couple of years. I, I, I admittedly didn't really give a shit at that point. I was older and I was working. and But like Miami Vice season one and really season two, there are some really ep- fantastic episodes of, of television in there. Glenn Fry is in a, in a phenomenal episode called Smuggler's Blues, which is what the song is based off of. And That's right. I mean, I was waiting when you, when you read your list. I was waiting for Bruce Willis because I didn't know if you were going to reference him. But like there's a – there's an episode in season one of Bruce Willis plays this arms dealer and it's a, he's a villain. He is a guy that's beating his wife and it's part of the storyline. And it's like, she finally goes to the cops cause she's trying to rat this guy out. And like, he's evil, man. He's kind of like a Wayne girl, you know? And, he, and the, the ending of that episode is it's, it, it's like a six minute finale and it's all played over um, Phil Collins. Um, I forget which song it is, but it, it's just like, powerful man like just to think that what he went off to do after that and this is yeah 1984 and just a few years later sure. the guys in die hard funny hilarious side note um glenn fry is from where i currently live really and and the street that leads to the middle school is glenn fry avenue that's, or glenn fry drive it's glenn fry drive that's awesome i love that what are the odds <laughs> of that Did i just referenced that and then he's what yeah, yeah. He's from Detroit, Michigan. The, the, the middle school, Royal Oak Middle School, right by my house, um, is on Glen Fry Drive. Thank you for reading up all those people that are in all the Miami Vice episodes through the years. I, I knew most of those, but like it was great to hear you just run through those again. That's like That just says so much about his eye for talent, right? Uh, absolutely. Like, he could just feel it. And also like Michael Mann's dialogue, because he wrote a lot of his own dialogue. It might have been credited to some other people. He shares some credits. He's at the helm. You have four Academy Award winners in this film. Natalie Portman. Forgot about that one. John Voight. By the way, whatever John Voight was doing with his character, that is a guy you want no parts of. Just looking at him. Forget about his criminal activity. Forget about the fact that he owns or at least operates a bar somewhere up in the hills. 
This guy looks like a snake smells. <laughs> he plays a guy named Nate. For those listening, he plays a guy named Nate who's like basically Neil's fence sets up a lot of his of his potential um, scores. Um, two things on that. One is uh, Nate is a big r- character in Heat 2, by the way, just to let you know. And two, um, Jason, let me ask you, could you ever pull off a bolo tie? No, I don't have the build for it. Couldn't do it. <laughs> I'm not I'm not Timothy Oliphant, you know? Timothy Oliphant would look great in a bolo, right? <laughs> but I don't even know if John Voigt pulls it off here. You know, he's got the... I don't know if what is that? Is that a permed mullet? What he's is going hair, on? He's got like these like long golden robes, and he's got a bolo right? tie. Like what's, what's he's what he's, he's the guy? human embodiment of a pair of snakeskin boots, <laughs> right? Like like in the eighties. Okay, remember the opening sequence of the George Michael's Faith video, <laughs> right? Those those snakeskin cowboy boots. That's sure. John Voight in this movie, right? Just gross like you can see the cigarette stains on his face you're just like and it's it's gross and it's fantastic we didn't even talk about the shootout okay like and i sort of feel like it's obvious that you know that is an incredible moment in this film and and the the best thing about that part is like this movie's playing for like an hour and 40 minutes before the you know the bank heist the shootout sequence even happens and it's like it just injects like what I wrote down on my notes It injects like this B12 shot into this film, which didn't even really need it. But then all of a sudden this movie just gets taken to the next level with this sequence that took them. I think they filmed it over four consecutive weekends in downtown LA because they couldn't shoot it during the week because people were working. So they would basically go shoot Monday through Friday elsewhere. Then they'd go back to downtown LA and they staged the shootout. They used, you know, somewhere between a thousand rounds of ammo for each take um, those are real sounds of bullets boun- bouncing off the buildings. Like the logistics of how they shot that and how they designed that sequence. I mean, you were in the military. I mean, you must have far more respect for that than I do. Like as far as like how realistic that must have been. Marines at the Marine Corps Recruit Depot in San Diego are shown that video. <laughs> They're shown that scene as an example of how to retreat while under fire. Wow. Val Kilmer was very proud of the fact and well, he's still alive, so he presumably is still very proud of the fact that he trained and studied with that weapon for so long. That's a CAR-15. He trained with that weapon for so long that he could read. That was him reloading as quickly as he was actually reloading. That was real. He was that fast and that smooth with it. Um, that's a talent. That's and that's a, a perishable skill. And so, yeah, Marines at MCRD are shown that clip, the bank heist, as an example of how to retreat specifically under fire they move in tandem they're talking to each other move go move go they're providing cover fire suppressing fire it's a masterpiece and then once again the rules of the film the rules of vigilante justice tom sizemore takes the kid hostage right terrible takes the kid as a human shield and that's messed up for a lot of different reasons but also his character is a dad and vincent Hanna, who we find out in the film john voight Nate hips him to the fact this guy's on your he was a former Marine man and he he's into that scene he's calm he's cool under fire he raises that weapon and that great shot great depth of field down he goes down he goes and there's a great like once when Vincent fires that shot and they show Michael go down and then like they cut back Michael Mann cuts back to Vincent and you see Pacino it's a it's a close shot 
of Pacino's face. And like, he does this like little breath and he kind of just lets out like this, like a little bit of like air after he just shoots him. And then he goes and gets the kid. But like, man, that, where does that sequence, that whole shootout sequence, where does that rank for you? And as far as like, just like great action set pieces. I mean, I got to say, I mean, that's got to like, I mean, they must show that in film class today, like up and coming filmmakers, action filmmakers, they must look at that and be like, that's, that's it. I hold the battle of bloody porch in Sam Peckinpah's the wild bunch. (laughs) I knew that you were a Peckinpah guy. I could tell that you were, I knew this. It's up there. And the Wild Bunch is a legendary film. If you haven't sure. watched it, it's it's not for everybody. That's for sure. But no, but it's um, Peck and Peckinpah is not for everybody. Um, no, that's that's the best shootout scene in, in film history. And I I, I I am not qualifying that. It's the best shootout sequence in film history. I don't know how, how do you top that. How do you top that? I mean, it would have to be a war film. It would have to be. I mean, I mean, I can't even think of a war film that's that. I mean, good. maybe like maybe the Private Ryan opening, right? I mean, like that's that's pretty pretty powerful stuff. Okay, yeah, but that's not a, that's not like a shootout per se. No, you I, know? I hear you. It's a little different. You know, war films are a little bit different than crime film. Well, a lot different than crime films. There are various, obviously, good guys and bad guys. That well, the first twenty minutes of Saving Private Ryan is that's a Hall of Famer. That's just yeah. Off you go, first ballot, sure. Um, no, that sequence is out of control, man. And, and the fact that they had to keep bouncing back and forth, the fact that they had to go film other things and then come back and do that again, film other things, come back and do that again. I want to put this on the record. Um, <laughs> in L.A. in 1993, I'm sorry, in 1997, three gunmen held up a Bank of America with assault rifles. There was a 44-minute shootout. And all the gunmen were killed. Now, when the details came out later, witnesses said that the robbers had told them, we're here for the bank's money, not your money. Your Your money is insured by the federal government, which is exactly what Neil says to the hostages in the bank in heat two years prior. That's nuts. And you, you, you had mentioned Ben Affleck earlier. Actually, I think Affleck's becoming a fine director. I don't. I think agree. I totally agree. I don't. I don't think he's Scorsese, but he's he's put out some really great. The Town and Argo are fantastic. Awesome movies. Affleck, in researching The Town, he was talking to people in prison. He was talking to cops. Everybody they spoke to referenced Heat. Everybody he said he interviewed the police. They referenced Heat when he was interviewing the FBI. They referenced Heat. It's like wow. And that's just, like we were talking about, it, this film took off. It had that slow build. And then, you know, we revisit the, the 1996 Oscars for the 95 film year, and we're, we're disappointed and outraged, in fact, that it got completely overlooked. I don't want to spoil the book. And, you know, for those of you who have not read it, I'm referencing uh, Heat 2, which is a novel that Michael Mann put out at the end of last year with um, author Meg Gardner. Um, phenomenal book for those of you that are interested in, in seeing what happens um, before and after he, which I'll talk about in a second. But what I was going to tell you, Jason, that, that there's a sequence in the, and I guess in the, the last act of heat Two that definitely is man's attempt to rival the shootout scene. And it's, and I'm not spoiling anything, but it's like a big action set piece. That's just the sheer spectacle of it. Um, the grandeur of it is going to be incredible to see how it gets filmed. But like, you could tell that he, he felt like he had an answer to the shootout and he put this, this sequence at the close of the book. Anyway, the book is pretty amazing. It's, it's, um, plot twist. 
I finished the book earlier tonight. You did fit. Wow. I didn't think you did. Okay. <laughs> I was saving that one. I was going to tell you at the beginning, but plot twist. I finished it earlier tonight, my guy. Oh, man, dude. I, I love you for reading the book. So did you like it? Like, Because like, I, I was really Oh, it was riveting. It was absolutely really riveting. Really good. I, I was... The, the last 70 pages, I was, I was on a mission. Like, I'm, I'm finishing this. This has to happen. 100%. The book takes place literally like minutes after um, the events unfold in Heat. Um, it picks up with with the Val Kilmer character and and really takes you on this journey of of really what happens to him after that. But then there's a which I won't obviously spoil anything. But there's a whole um, you know pr- you know prologue that happens. It takes place in the late '80s in Chicago and what happens with Neil McCauley and his crew. You know several several years before the events of Heat and really kind of ta- you know shows them taking out a big score in Chicago and, and some major things happened with that. And, and then obviously it it's, also, it's, it's fair to say that it's both a prequel and a sequel. prequel and a sequel. And it also has the Vincent Hanna character that, you know, that plays a role and, and, and before and after. Right. So he kind of, kind of shows up in, in both, but like it's, it's, if you, if you love heat, you love the characters of heat. If you love Michael Mann, I was actually, if anything else, I would just say that I was blown away by how, what a great novelist he is. I mean, obviously a great writer because he writes a lot of his scripts, but like the novel sure. is, totally different form and uh i was i was very impressed i can't wait for them to make that into a movie a couple things that uh and this is not a um this isn't really a spoiler but chris's alias in heat 2 it's jeff bergman oh that's right yeah, yeah. right now yeah. what were the two characters what were pacino and russell crowe's characters in the insider yeah he, he was he was Lowell Bergman which I couldn't remember earlier he was Lowell Bergman and uh, and, and Jeff Wigand and Jeff Jeffrey Wigand that's right so he 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 took those made it up uh, what's the word a portmanteau made a portmanteau of that and that became Chris Hurlis's alias after the events of Heat 1 dude There's I, I got to tell you that is a deep deep hole that you just you just made that's very impressive very well impressive. I reached down to my nuts for that one There's several references in a couple paragraphs to the Doors LA woman Right? Are you a you know a little lost lady or you know in the city of night, uh, or another lost lady in the city of night? Um, and I thought that was interesting because Val Kilmer played Jim Morrison in the, in doors. the doors. Sure, yeah. It was like that can't be coincidental. That's not. There's so many songs about L.A. There's so many songs about L.A. He didn't just pull that one, right? Come on now. Come on. Did you notice, like, um, obviously we talked about Wayne Grow at length earlier about what just what a despicable, you know, character he was. But, like, that the, the bad guy, everybody, in Heat 2 was a guy by the name of Otis Wardell. I mean, Jason, what a, what a loser that guy is. Wow. He's – that guy is scum, isn't he? I didn't care who got him or how. I, I, I'm just like – you know, right. we were talking about movie justice. I don't care if it's the good guys who get them. I don't care if it's the bad guys. Please don't let it be a, a, a drunk driver. That's all. <laughs> you know, don't let it be some bystander. Make this guy die badly. That's, oh God, he's so repulsive. Like, more so than even Wayne Grow. He's just awful and everything about him makes me want i wanted to fight the book man did you do what i did when you were reading it like you were visualizing what man was doing with these sequences like i read it very visually because like i know that i've read that michael mann wants to make this into a movie i mean he's getting older so he needs to probably do it sooner than later but like i think 
I, I read it very visually. Like I, when I read all the characters, when I read Neo, I was thinking De Niro the entire time. When I read yes. Vincent, I was thinking Al Pacino. And obviously, neither of them are going to be in the movie. He's going to have to recast it with everybody, right? It was 30 years ago. Sure. But like, I still like read it that way, and I read it very visually, and I found it all, all the more enjoyable doing it that way. Without question. I, I couldn't not because those characters are so ingrained in me. Right. They're so ingrained in me. I, I even mentions to Trejo and Drucker. All I saw were McKelty Washington and and Danny Trejo. I was like, this, this. So that brings up the interesting question. How obviously you can't use those same actors. Val Kilmer's very sick. He's got three. He can't even, you know, really talk. I don't know how you do this. You, I don't want to. I don't want to see a CGI de aging. No, 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 no. They better not even remotely consider doing that. I, that's that's that would, a terrible idea. No, 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 no. That would ruin everything for me. So, who's your Vincent Hanna? Jesus, you had, I, knew, you, I knew you were going to ask me that. And I and the thing is, like, I don't feel like I have my finger on the pulse of like today's young actors enough. Like I probably should, or that I used to. Like I just don't know enough about the key names today that would even be considered for, you know, one of those characters. Right. I mean, like who's the biggest actors today, right? Timothy Chalamet. He's not, he's not going to be in heat too. Like he's right. So like, who, who are you thinking? Is there anybody that came to mind for you that would play one of those two? So, um, Tom Hardy, Tom Hardy can do whatever he wants. Sure. Um, He's an insane person, so he takes on these absurdly challenging assignments. This is true. There, there's, there's obviously a lot of, of, of different options, but that particular age, because then you, you have to go forward and backward. Because Heat itself takes place in 95, the book goes out to 2000, and back to 1988. You know, that's a lot of time to play with there, and then you've got these indelible characters who are stuck with you. It's going to be very hard to overcome that. And if Michael Mann wants to do it, I can't fault the guy. Um, I don't know how to make a motion picture. <laughs> so, Michael, I'm leaving it to you, man, but I will be there on sure. opening night when Heat 2 comes out, without question. Jason, so I made a couple of notes while we were talking uh, as I wanted to ask you, like, what's our next movie? But then I think I may have even answered it before I'm even going to ask you, but I wrote down two titles. I wrote down L.A. Confidential, and which I would be I would love to revisit. And I also wrote down Unforgiven. So let's let's do Confidential. No one talks about Confidential, and I want them to talk about Confidential. That more. movie's incredible. Yeah, let's do that one. I'm in. That was my best picture of the year. Well, actually, I want to go back for a second. I got sure. a question for you. It's, this is go this back. is maybe going to mess you up a little bit. Nineteen ninety eight. James Kahn and Michael Mann are recording the DVD commentary for Thief. And in that commentary, James Kahn blindsides Michael Mann and tells him that he was kind of disappointed that there wasn't a spot for him in Heat. I heard about this, yep. So the question is, where do you slot James Kahn in in Heat? You have to remove an element. you got to take a character out. Where do you plug him in? The way that James Kahn speaks and the way his like the way he delivers a lot of his lines and he's very sort of like slow and like he's very elaborate the way he speaks. Um, he's got that New York kind of accent sometimes when he wants to use it. I think he would have been a great John Voight. I think he would have been a great Nate. Right? That's where I was going as well. hundred percent. I was I like, totally yes. I think he might even be better than be John guy. Voight. Well, I mean, what you could do is you could take you could rewrite Nate's backstory and have him be James Conn's oh, thief. Yeah. 
retired out of the game now, right? Because Nate is, again, this is that criminal underworld element that I love so much. Nate's not just offense. He's also the guy who arranges transportation, passports, yeah. documents. He's the guy that picks up information from snitches. He's the guy that's got a guy in every hidey hole throughout the city. This is how he gets a whole dossier on Vincent Hanna. It's got to be pretty difficult to get a dossier on a police lieutenant from a major crimes unit in Los Angeles. That can't be easy information to come by. He's also the guy that arranges not one but two different pieces of transportation for Neil McCauley to get out of town, plus a plane. Like, there's a lot there. This guy is wired into the underground. Tom Noonan's character is this guy who pulls information out of the air and, and you know turns them on to the bank score. These are guys that know how to get equipment. That's what I love about this, is that these guys know how to do these things. Like, Neil McCauley steals this ambulance, but then Chris plants an ammonia bomb on it and blows the whole thing up, so they can't find anything anyway. There's no trace elements in it. There's no fingerprints in it. He blows it up. It's gone. There's nothing you can do about it. Do you think that the... um the James Conn of 95 could have played Vincent. I kind of think that he could have. Wow. That's I mean, he wouldn't question. have the same like coked up energy yeah, that could've. Pacino's obviously going to bring a performance, but like from a, from a like a, a, sure. a worn hardened police Lieutenant that's seen it all. That is in full command of his faculties. I could see James Conn playing Vincent very, very well. He was in his middle twenties in, yeah. in 72 when he played Sonny Corleone. Yeah. I think he probably still have it. You know, he's not that old. Oh, okay, so Kevin Gage, Wayne Grow. This is an interesting little fact. So um, he got himself into a spot of trouble. He was growing weed in California before you could grow weed. Um, and he got pinched up, and he did uh, a couple years in one of the penitentiaries out in, in California. Across the board, inmates, guards, everybody called him Wayne Grow. Wayne Grow. <laughs> he, he couldn't shake. And this was after he was in, I think he played Billy in Con Air. Which was a bigger hit. He wasn't Con Air. Yeah. That's right. And Con Air was a that. much bigger hit than Heat. But everyone just called him Wayne Grow. I, I think that's hilarious. I just think that's amazing to me. I, I think Heat is a cinematic masterpiece. I can turn the volume off and appreciate it cinematically. Yep. Just what I'm looking at. Obviously, we talked about the sound design. It's... It's it's a magnificent achievement, and again, because you've got sound that is blistering your eardrums, but it's not a brutal assault, and then you can still hear people's speaking voices clearly, which is, I don't know how you mix that audio. It's out of control. It's absolutely wonderful, and obviously the performances. I know it's not, it's not The Godfather of The Godfather 2 for De Niro and Pacino. It's not Raging Bull. It's not The Deer Hunter, and it's not supposed to be. And that's the other problem that a lot of folks have is that you, you're bringing with you the collective experiences that we've all had with Pacino and De Niro in film. This is not any of that. And so you have to get out of your own way of thinking and watch it for what it is. Um, the best way I heard this described was actually by the, the record producer, Rick Rubin. Um, Rick is a Buddhist, and he had a very Zen approach to listening to music, and it changed the way I listen to music, and then consequently it changed the way I watch film. And that is, he said, with deference to music, listen with no expectation. No matter how many times you've heard a piece of music before, clear your mind and listen to it 
without expectation, and you will hear things that you hadn't heard before. So I applied this to some of the other films that I always kind of liked, or really enjoyed, but wasn't sure why. And so that I watched with no expectation, and it changed everything. And when I watched Heat a couple years ago, after I heard that Rick Rubin advice, it altered what I thought of the film, how I saw it, and it became top five crime movie for me, ever. I could I could have used uh, that advice in 1995 when I was an idiot 24-year-old and I didn't particularly care for the movie very much. I was an even bigger idiot 15-year-old, so... <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the great, like, truly... And I'll leave you with this. Like, that's one of the great mistakes I made. Like, I, I mean, I own up to it, but like, I don't, I don't know if I was in a bad place that night or I worked long that day. I don't know what it was because like, I felt like I appreciated film enough at that point in my life that I sort of knew good film from bad. And I, sure. I just, he just didn't land on me the way it d- does now. Hmm. I mean, it's like, um, you know, just talked about it for two hours with you. So um, that shows you where it sits for me. But um, dude, this was a blast. Like I am, I, I don't plan on taking much of this out. Like, I think this episode is going to go quite long. <laughs> oh, well, it's all good. I'm still laughing about your, uh, your babe um, tirade from earlier. Oh, just God. like hilarious. Nothing. It got completely skunked. Even from the technical Oscars, I don't understand how that happened. It'll go down as one of the great, like, embarrassments of the Academy. Like, I obviously, not the, not the, not the first time, not the last time, but certainly just, it's, it's, uh, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't get it. But listen, we did our part. We did our part to uh, to elevate it. And uh, as always, it's a blast to see you. I, I I love catching up with you, talking about movies. It's you're the best. And um, everybody, I, I know I've been gone for a while. It's going to be back. Um, my next episode is. I'll, I'll just say that it's going to be baseball themed. Um, I will. I will leave it at that. And I think it's going to be Lance Newhouser. And I think Lance knows what we're going to talk about. And it'll probably be, you know, sometime in April or May, I'm thinking. But it's a film that I have um, a lot of love for. But Jason, so LA Confidential. So we're going to have you back. Yes. Can I get that? Can I get that in writing, baby? Because that, oh my God. Yes. Oh. It's a done deal. Um, that movie made Russell Crowe a movie star. And Guy Pierce. And Guy. Yeah. I mean, but I think like when you're, when you watch LA Confidential, you sort of see it happening in real time. This Russell Crowe guy yeah. is. I mean, Back-to-back Best Actor Awards is really difficult to to, to compete with. They don't make movies like that. Um, they certainly don't make movies like that now. But even in 97, when that movie came out, they don't make movies like that. 100%. And it, it's, it's just – it was sort of a throwback to the – to the, to the 70s, you know, crime cinema. And I think that was very deliberate by Curtis Hansen and, and James Elroy, obviously. But um, I it would be delighted to talk about L.A. Confidential. That movie is phenomenal. Well, I, we'll talk about it. But just out of care, my own curiosity, didn't, was it Shakespeare in Love won that year? Oh, geez. Um, so, no, that no, won. that was the Titanic year. That was Titanic. That was Titanic. Uh, Shakespeare won in 1998. That's right. Later. That's right. When it yeah. should have been Saving Private Ryan by a landslide. God. <laughs> God, that's right. I mean, it's hard to compete with Titanic, but God, yeah, fuck. My friend, a pleasure always. Absolutely, man. You are the best, and thank um, you for having me. Of course, thank you. I'm so glad you read Heat too. That made my night. I love it. So I was saving that one for the plot twist. I was. I had a feeling that you were going to hit me with that. I wasn't sure, but thank you. I appreciate the commitment to the pod. Much love, and uh, we'll talk soon, buddy. Love you too, man. Have a great night. I roll with you, Neil, whatever.
No, not on this one, Michael. On this one, you're on your own. You figure this is the best thing to do. This is the best thing to do. I got plans. I'm going away after. So for me, the reward is maybe worth the stretch. When Elaine takes good care of you, you got plenty put away. You got T-bonds, real estate. If I were you, I would be smart. I would cut loose of this. For me, the action is the juice. Amen. Go. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Fuck them. Let's do it. <laughs>